to bestsellers. I'm Natalie Jameson. And I'm Phil Williams. And there's no need to do anything else here other than say to you, this is part two of Lee Child and Heather Martin. And when we join it now... Where Heather is just talking us through what she's decided to read to us from The Reacher Guy. It's a big book and I of course, don't really know which paragraphs to select. But then I, I remembered Echo Burning. And I remembered Carmen Greer saying, I don't know where to start. And, and Reacher's answer, you know, start at the beginning, usually works best that way. So I'm basically just going to go for the beginning. And uh, so this is chapter one, the library. He passed it every time they went to the library on Burrogate, which during the holidays when he was dumped with his grandparents in Otley was about once a week. It was his grandmother who took him there first. She was a great reader, he told me. She only had about nine books, but she used the library as was typical. She held his hand as they turned left out of the house and walked downhill past the biscuit factory and the tannery towards Kirkgate, a continuation of Queen's Terrace and Station Road across busy Burris Lane. When he was older, he ran ahead with his brothers, the middle one of three in those days, impatient to duck onto the cobbled lane, to press his face up against the cast iron railings of the churchyard. His parents had been married there in All Saints Parish Church, built in Norman times on Anglo-Saxon foundations on the 5th of March, 1949. Later, he would become famous for being tall. Other things too, but being tall was a big part of it. Tall and fair-haired and blue-eyed. Hair that was dirty blonde. Eyes that could blink and come back different, like changing the channel from a happy show to some bleak documentary about prehistorical survival a million years ago. Even back then he had a reputation. Everyone could see he was bigger and stronger than his brothers. But he was only a child, and big as he was, the object of his attention at six feet towered over him. Literally, since it had four diagonally symmetrical towers, one on each corner, castellated and crenellated and embattled, connected by parapets and surrounded by eroded headstones to buried deep in the emerald grass, like something out of a picture book edition of King Arthur or Robin Hood or the Canterbury Tales. It was the kind of thing a boy might dream of having in his back garden, if he had a back garden, rather than a paved yard just big enough to string a washing line from one side fence to the other. He hardly needed to go to the library. There were stories right there on his path and all sorts of questions to be answered. Life was full of suspense. Beautifully done, Heather. And also that does really encapsulate what Lee was talking about before about how this has a narrative to it you're not just reading a biography mm -hmm. as we know them which was part of the attraction for me what I wanted to know from you Heather directly and just pretend he's not there for a second is did you have to take anything out <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, did I have to take it you mean in the sense that it's an authorized biography almost nothing almost nothing I mean Lee was incredibly permissive actually but but, you know, you could say he was incredibly permissive, or you could say that I managed somehow, after all our many long conversations, to strike the right note. And I, and I, 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 I like to think that I exercised good judgment. Now, he was very permissive and took, you know, almost nothing out, to the extent that I can hardly remember what. Um, you know, I did a little bit of uh, cutting myself strategically before showing it to him, of course. Um, but, you know, that, that kind of whole storytelling thing, I think Lee often, he's often asked, writers are often asked, you know, where stories come from. And I really wanted to bring out from the very beginning that for Lee, stories were always there. Stories yeah. were, were everywhere. Stories were in the air, much more than, you know, um, books, really. Stories and Lee, can, can you put your finger, Lee, on, on why is it when you've only met Heather five years ago, 
that you trust this woman enough to give her your authorized life story. And you said warts and all. I mean, the stuff in here about your brother Richard, for example, and the stuff in here about yeah, yeah there's so the much in here that that some people might choose to withhold from a, a public book. It, it it took a you know it took a little while. Obviously, you know, we met under just completely social circumstances. Um, we had dinner at the Union Square Cafe. And it, the first several times we met was purely social. And so the conversation started out just friendly. Uh, you know, this, this project was not on anybody's mind at the beginning. And so, yeah, over the, um, over the months, I got a sense of trust about it, absolutely. And I, but I also got a sense of uh, that she would be able to do the job. And I'm glad she started up there in Otley because my grandma and granddad up there, I loved dearly. They were the only human beings in my whole family. And uh, they would, she loved reading my grandma, but as Heather said, she only had nine books. That's how it was. You know, that's how it was for most people most of the time. So we would go to the library and we, there was a biscuit factory at the, the bottom of the terrace. And then there was um, this churchyard. And in the churchyard, the thing that she points out is a monument to some people, some workers who were killed in a tunnel collapse when they were constructing a tunnel nearby. And that's part of the narrative, that that's how life used to be, that you would, you know, if you had a job, you, you could be killed and nobody would care all that much. I mean, it happened all the time in mining, uh, tunneling, industry in general. Uh, you know, I had temporary jobs in doing various industrial things back in the day when there was zero safety things. I once had a demolition job where uh, demolishing an old brick building in Birmingham, and five stories up, we were balancing on top of a wall, knocking it down underneath our own feet with um, no clothing, no nothing, no safety, no strapping, no harnesses. We were just balancing on a wall and, and knocking it down with a hammer, five stories above the street. That's mm -hmm. how it used to be. And, and I remember thinking it would be great if Heather noticed that monument because it really meant something to me then that didn't tell me about you it. You could pass. You didn't tell me about it. I that. didn't, but you could pass by no. these monuments to tragedies that were commonplace back in the day. Now we wouldn't accept them. And that's progress. I mean, this is the thing. I mean, as to how it came about, yeah, social uh, conversation. and it, But it was an extended conversation. And we were writing, and we were writing specifically at one point about the Spanish translations of these books. Um, but uh, so I would say that it was a kind of, it was a very organic process. I mean, you know, it was certainly not, an, it, was, it was an idea that came to me and I just, it just felt right. And of course, when Lee told me the Otley story, which was before I had the idea of doing the biography, I just loved that story. It was so different as well to my own experience. Um, and I did grow up in a house full of books. Um, so the stories were there and I was a reader from the start like Lee, but it was a very different experience. So everything seemed different and interesting and unusual and dare I say exotic to me. We should have asked you really, and, uh, Heather. I've, I've, I mean, I know the answer to this, but we should ask you so you can let our listeners know. Your background, oh, what is your background I, in well, writing? It's in academia, uh, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, essentially my background is a, as a, is it, it is in literature, uh, you know, it's not a huge step, um, but it was in, um, in Spanish and French literature, really, I, I'm a linguist. So, but in a way, I, I kind of think that in a way that was, again, liberating for me in approaching writing about Lee, because I'm not, I didn't feel at all constrained by it. I had, 
you know, no preconceptions about the Midlands. And I had very few preconceptions about genre either or crime writing. For me, I just, I had read these books and I just approached them as I would approach any other book, you know. This is just great writing that I, and stuff that I really enjoyed reading. So I think in a way it was great that I didn't come with all that, I don't know what Lee thinks about this, but, and I learned a lot while I was doing it, of course, not least from listening to him, but um, I didn't come with that baggage about genre and crime and, you know, what is a thriller and, you know, where does Lee really belong in the pantheon or any of that. I mean, to, to a large extent, I just put that to one side because it didn't really interest, interest me. I wanted to tell those great stories about Otley. And funnily enough, I, the, the thing about going to Otley, um, we were both in Harrogate, it was 2017, and I'd already started doing a bit of writing on the side, you know. I started writing it before I told Lee, really, or having a go. And But we were in Harrogate, and Lee was collecting some big award. But I, I suddenly realised that Otley was just down the road, and I thought, you know, basically, I'm going to get on a bus <laughs> and go to Otley for the day. And I did, and it was just wonderful. And, you know, the, and, and I told him, I said, I'm going to go to Otley. And he said, and it was so classic what he said to me. He said, make sure you go to the library. I read a lot of books there. And I just thought, brilliant, this is perfect. I know about the, I know about the grandparents. I know about the, the, the beloved grandparents. I know about smoking in the books and everything. I know that they were the only human beings. Isn't that wonderful? So I, I kind of thought, yeah. And I went to the library. They were so excited to hear that, um, you know, about the connection. They were really the first, um, the librarian there was the first person that I, I sort of said Lee Child and biography in the, in the same sentence to. And it was a little bit cheeky because really it was completely unauthorized at that point but I, I just was testing it out you know the idea of us and she funnily mm. enough she'd grown up in the same street on the opposite side of the road to his grandparents so it was lovely and uh, <laughs> it was just a, a wonderful moment and then I think Phil to be perfectly honest the next person beyond Lee and me that I told about it was you no as I told you quite I've told you quite early on yeah I thought well, I, was I, I, thought, I remember I remember, remember I kind of confided in you yeah. Well, there's this thing I'm doing and I thought I'd tell you about it. Do you remember? I don't remember you exactly, very, yeah. And you were very encouraging. So actually you've got a little bit of a, you know. It's all down to you, Phil. You played oh. part. <laughs> you say all the well, right things, I mean, baby. You don't well, need to, well, you don't need no, to inflate your I mean, ego anymore. I just remember, I guess for me, those moments were quite important, you know. Um, but she reminds me, yeah, was the fact that she could yeah. read Spanish, because I'm, you know, I'm translated into I think fifty or fifty-one languages, and of course I don't know any any of them other than English, and mm -hmm. so I don't know how 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 do they read? You know, are they any good in in the translation? And so if I meet somebody that can uh, really understand those languages, I always ask, and uh, so I, my Spanish sales were poor and. Uh, you know, just not up to the normal average, and I couldn't understand why. So, when I found out she could right she could read uh, Spanish, I said, "Well, you've read the English, now read the Spanish, and tell me what you think." And she was very intelligent about it and pointed out a lot of things. And that was really the beginning of the trust. I thought, yeah, this is a woman who really gets it, who cares about the right things, and understands the right things. And um, so because she gave him a negative report, I moved my Spanish publication to a new <laughs> publisher. And we've done much better since because they get the translation uh, thing. Because oh, wow. as you as yeah. you know, reading it in English, it, so it, it's important. A, so important. you got you got mm. Reacher's thought processes are right there on the page, you know, short sentences, uh, mm. dramatic action, some lyrical mm -hmm. bits. But it's it's all about rhythm and um, it propulsion. The rhythm propels the reader through the book. It pulls the reader through the book. 
and Absolutely. if that is not there in the translation it won't work and, and, uh, and we've, we've run into that in many different languages but we got it sorted out and Spanish is now sorted out because yeah, you know can, you kind of thank you you kind of mess with that at your peril but I was kind of shocked because Spanish is actually a really accommodating language and it's 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 spent centuries adapting to English as well um, but you know they were doing things that they didn't need to do like you know correctingly syntax basically sticking <laughs> in verbs sticking sticking in verbs where we didn't need them and if there were like three short sentences they joined them together well okay Lee, Lee knows how to join sentences but shocking even worse even more scandalous then there's one of those lovely long lyrical sentences and there are plenty of them in Reacher books they chopped them up so, so basically everything was We're doing it the wrong so way around. Was becoming very bland, and I just I couldn't stand it really because for me, I mean, you know, what's special about uh, the Reacher books really, and, and these writing is the voice, and it's a very elusive quality, and really only he can he can do that voice, and um, you've got to kind of be as faithful to it as you can. It, it, it is elusive, it's you know, kind of almost a, as elusive as Reacher is himself, but but it's but it's but it's. Yeah, it's very distinctive, and you know when it's there, and you know when it's missing. You know, it's like a sort of you know, finger. And that kind here. of loops. So, and it is about rhythm. It is about something. Sorry, it's not something elemental as well. A bit like sort of waves on the beach or something. This is it's all about the rhythm. And it loops back to Natalie's earlier point about the the divide between literary and genre, as if you know we're some kind of primitives or savages. Uh, doing our best with language and actually not you know I, I know Latin I know Greek I had that grammar school education back back in the, in the uh, you know in, in those days if you went to a school like that it was a classical education so I'm, I'm very well educated I know a lot of words I can do all the sentences and all that kind of thing but the point is I choose not to because the genre demands something different and the assumption that we don't know is is very annoying but the artistry is still there. And I could, yeah. I think my background actually, Phil, really suited me to appreciate that artistry and those subtle subtleties. And yeah, I felt really, really strongly about that translation. I remember when Lee asked me that question, it's the kind of question where a lot of people I think would just say, oh, it's, it's lovely, you know, think, wonderful, it's great. it's great. But I thought, you know, I, I guess I, it was that thing again of seizing an opportunity. I thought, well, actually, I don't think it's that good. So I kind of gave a, a, a breakdown, an analytical breakdown of you know what was happening, and yeah, we, that was a big that was a big thing because we had quite a long conversation about that. And I guess you could say we're still having that conversation today. I mean, because I love the writing. Well, I think, but I think that truthful approach is obviously something that you know reaches a great. Uh, he can spot a character that he's going to trust a mile off, and you know Lee, obviously, <laughs> similar fashion. I was fascinated in the book that your agent, Darley Anderson, is this still true that you, there's never been a written formal agreement between you? It was just a handshake and you trusted each other and... Yeah, that's absolutely true. And that's, you know, one of the joys of my particular career is that agents are incredibly important. Uh, and, you know, there's a, there's a feeling if you want to be a writer, you've got to get an, an agent. And that's not a big enough sentence. You've got to get a good agent. And there is no bigger difference between a good agent and a bad agent. Uh, it's the largest distance in the world. Bad agents are useless and awful and damaging. Good agents create your career. And I was really lucky with Dolly. I mean, I knew straight away this, here was a guy totally focused on what I wanted. And I well remember we went to a meeting uh, 
at a pub at a publisher that the publisher that became my British publisher, and we were in the back of a minicab on the way back to his office, and we started talking about the business side of it, and we just said we agreed the percentages, and we shook hands on it, and we have never done anything more than that. There is absolutely nothing on paper, and that's 25 years ago now, and. Uh, <laughs> It is. It's frankly unbelievable. And a staggering amount of money has passed through his office. And I mm. absolutely, totally trust that I've got every penny I should have done. And it's just one of those great pleasures in life where you meet a person that you can trust. Um, it's one of the big pleasures. Lee, um, do you know yeah. who else on this Zoom is signed to Darley Anderson? Uh, you. <laughs> Natalie Jones. Oh, really? Awesome. Yeah, well, you know, he is, uh, <laughs> yeah. he is a... He's not Who my agent. I'm just signed to his agency. So Tanner Simons, Tanner Simons at Dali's They are the best agency in the world. I mean, <laughs> I say that obviously I'm a bit biased because I'm one of their clients. But <laughs> if you look at um, top ten positions per year, uh, that, yeah, consistently as well. Yeah, all every every single year uh, for a small agency, it's um, it's without question the most successful in the world in terms of uh, selling orders. So well done, Natalie. Uh, yeah, so I was going to say that I looked around at agents and I obviously applied to a few. And then with Dali Anderson Agency, they were so upfront and honest and about what they would do and what they like about books and reading. And the fact that they sell lots of books, they absolutely chose as a, a benefit to what they could offer to people. Whereas so many other agents kind of hid that fact or never mentioned it or... It was, I don't know, it just didn't seem quite so genuine or real. Yeah, somehow. well, D Darley, yeah. Darley himself is, uh, you know, extremely posh guy. Uh, he's the son of a vicar from a posh part of Yorkshire, and he went to Oxford and all that kind of thing. But he is, um, he focuses he focuses completely on commercial appeal. He, he loves appealing characters. He loves great storytelling. He doesn't care if it's, uh, you know, the literary quality that can be fixed later. It's that instinct for storytelling, the instinct for a great character. But it's always a funny balancing act with Dali because he is quite a posh person, but he's, he's dealing with the mass market. And I remember once, uh, he came over to visit us in New York and he, you know, like any agent, he brings a stack of manuscripts with him and, um, and he brought one with him that we, he wanted to all talk about. And um, so we took, it was set in Germany or something and it was uh, quite a heavyweight book. And we were really, my wife was there and we, the three of us were really getting into it. And at one point my wife said to Dali, um, I think you're being a little highbrow about that reaction. And the look on Dali's face, it was like being called a murderer or something. He was just horrified at being called highbrow. And he thought, oh, my God, am I? Am I? And, uh, you know, because he, he focuses relentlessly on what pe actual people actually want. Yeah. I've got, to, I've, got to, yeah, I've got to tell my darling story. I mean, sorry. <laughs> I, I, kind of, I kind of met him, obviously, to interview, met him a few times, but um, when we did our sort of main interview for the book, of course he was sceptical, just slightly, uh, but he wasn't sceptical of the concept. He, he actually thought, yeah, this guy should have, a, should have a biography. And also, a lot of the people, I think for Dali, it was quite important. It sort of came to him during our conversation that a lot of the people who'd helped or who'd worked with Lee early on in particular, 
that they should have their part of the story told. So I think that that became quite important to him. But what? But he was definitely skeptical about you know me doing it. Um, and so it was great when I eventually had to send him a couple of chapters that he featured in as a courtesy. I was. It was so great to you know to get again no cuts, nothing I had to change, no problems. Basically, he said, ah. Oh, it really read like a good story, <laughs> you know, like he was, he was genuinely surprised. I was chuffed by that, obviously, but my agent story was not, was, it was different to yours. It was that I, I kind of didn't, you know, how do you find an agent, especially for nonfiction, what do you do? So um, I, I just decided to do it this way and I worked backwards through the- But Dali's <laughs> genius is that. Uh, I mean, <laughs> just like he What did. an agent does is they, they hold out their hand, palm up, and on it is an ugly toad. I love this story. And they say to the publisher, if you kiss <laughs> this ugly toad just right, it will turn into a handsome prince. <laughs> you know, that's what an agent usually says. What Dali says is he holds out his hand, palm up, and on it is an ugly toad. And he says, this is a handsome prince. And in such a way that they believe him. Um, he's, a genius, he's a genius for that. It's such a great story. You see, there's another little story that just stuck with me the first time I heard it. And it was so important to me that the exact words, when Lee tells those stories or when Dali told a story or people, you know, I really wanted to get those exact words that they were using into the book, which I have done a lot of the time. Let me uh, ask you, Lee, about the end of the book, which does um, focus on what we already know publicly now, which is that um, Andrew is going to step in uh, to the reacher breach, as it were. Um, but I think you're, you're co-authoring, or that certainly is the appearance that we've got from, from the end of this book. So we're getting Reacher 25 when and, and what is Andrew's role? What is your role? Can you offer just some clarity on that for us? Yeah, um, Reacher 25 is called The Sentinel and it, I think it is October 27th this year. And yeah, it's a, it's a collaboration between me and Andrew because what happened was, again, you know, and with Heather here, it's very, uh, very pertinent to talk about. You know, my entire life has been uh, shaped by those impressions that you get as a kid and what I remember the shape of your life you go to school for a brief period of time then you work for a very long time then you retire you know that was that was cast iron to me that that was the shape of a person's life and so I reached this age I just turned 65 last year and uh, you know 65 is when you retire and so I couldn't get it out of my head it was like it was I was actually there it was predetermined <laughs> and I I sort of wrestled with it for a long time, but I thought, no, I'm, I, I've, I've done it, I've, uh, I've achieved it, now I'm going to retire. But the readers were so, would be so upset not to get any more Reacher that I thought, is there a way we can keep this going? And I have this brother, Andrew, who is about 15 years younger than me. He was the sort of late mistake in the family. They thought they could probably get away with it by that point. And, and and they couldn't and so we had this late edition and he is he, he our relationship is great because we never lived together as siblings you know we were never under the same roof as two kids uh, i was long gone by the time he was out of nappies and all of that and so we've only ever known each other as kind of friends and he's very like me he literally is me 15 years ago so i thought we, maybe and he's a writer as well he's done eight or nine books you know he's a midlist writer that he never quite broke out unfortunately but he's a very good writer and so I thought if he if he could carry it on then the reader can get Reacher for another 15 years and so um, that's that's what we're doing and there is a transition period where 
um, I'm very hands off about it. You know, I don't want because writing is such a personal thing. It's it's got to be the product of one mind, really. So I've, we haven't sat nose to nose thrashing it out. We've you know consulted and uh, but he's basically done most of the work, and uh, it's a good book, and I'm looking forward to see seeing how it does. But it, yeah, it was. I, I just needed to get out. As I was saying before, I feel that I'm I'm sort of lagging behind the world now. I'm feeling old. Uh, well, do you know what's weird? When I saw you at Harrogate in, in that 2017 year, um, and I really didn't put two and two together as quickly as I should have done, but would you remember chatting to me on the landing and we were talking mostly about the villa? And then um, you said, uh, I'm not sure how much longer I can do this. And I went, oh, you've got loads of books in you. Because to me, you've, you don't seem old. And, you, you know, and each, each one I was reading was honestly was better than the previous one. And I thought, this is a man on an upward, still on an upward trajectory. I don't know why he stood on the landing of the, the old swan telling me that he thinks he's got to stop. Well, it was, uh, you know, the whole, the whole ambition of mine was that you would say that, that, yeah, they're getting better each one. And I would hate to get to the point where you had to be a little embarrassed about meeting me on that. Mm. landing in Harrogate mm. I, I did not want to get into the situation where you have to shuffle around and keep on talking about the villa because you don't want to talk about how bad the last book was because <laughs> you know that personally and professionally I would regard that as a terrible failure so I, I you know it relates to sports you don't want to be the guy that sticks around two seasons too long and becomes a sort of embarrassment you've got to get out just before anybody realizes and i felt the the time was coming up and i do honestly believe that yeah the readers see 24 reacher books of a solid consistent standard none of them are bad none of them are phoned in all of them i tried my best and i'm if that is my legacy i'd be absolutely delighted i do not want to spoil it by people saying, oh yeah, he used to be good. Or yeah, those early ones were good, but the last two, oh my God, I did not want to get into that. Because, you know, we see that everywhere, not in writing. There are writers that should have quit a couple of years ago. We know that. There are writers that should have quit 10 years ago. And I, I'm very self-critical and very self-aware about it. I mean, it's not a problem. I'm not hung up about it. I'm just very analytical. That. But you're also a numbers guy, aren't you? And I'm wondering why, as a numbers guy, you didn't want to go, right, 25 and out rather than 24. Yeah, well, I was, uh, it started out as a 21 was my target because one of my huge literary heroes is John D. MacDonald, who wrote the Travis McGee books, uh, which is a fabulous series, probably the greatest series ever, really. Uh, and he did 21 and then he died. And I thought, as a mark of respect, I should match him, but not exceed him. I'll do 21 and quit. But the publishers were so, uh, you know, they were like, please don't, don't do that. Um, and so I did another three, I signed up to do up to number 24. And then the choice was, am I really gonna sign up again and be almost 70 before I quit? Or is this the right time? And it was a very tough decision on every level, you know, emotionally, my identity, you know, who am I now? It, giving that up was difficult. Obviously, giving up the money. I mean, it's ludicrous, you know, when you come from where I come from, mm. somebody offers you the GDP of Belgium to write another three or four books. How can you turn that down? Uh, and yeah, I had to. Uh, that was a, that was a huge of... thing. 
I've just got a couple of things to, to bring in there. What, one that I can really vouch for this, the problem of, you know, okay, Lee wants to stop. Fair enough, he's done his bit, you know, but um, he can't afford to let Ricci go. And that is because of the readers. It's okay, the publishers, but it's the readers. I've been in the archive and I've seen boxes and boxes and boxes, and I do not exaggerate, of letters from readers basically begging Lee, uh, or, either begging him not to stop or begging him not to kill Reacher off or panicking, in a, in a, in a, with a note of desperation that he might, or that he might dare to die or anything like that. Uh, and, 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 and it was just, it was just, it became very clear to me when I saw those letters, the situation that, in a way that Lee found himself in, you know? So there's that. There's also the other thing, which really, um, I remember Lee saying to me, yeah, you know, when he said you can do the biography, he agreed to, to do the biography, he said, yeah, sure, let's do it, we'll do it. But um, I don't want it to come out until after I've retired. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. I don't know if you remember that, Lee. But, uh... I sort of do, but, and, and yeah, those boxes of letters are, uh, you know, just so lovely that um, it, the yeah. fact that it means so much to readers is just the most lovely, gorgeous feeling. And, uh, I but, uh, that that they I'm responsible to them you know they have a book is a two-way street you know first a book is written then it is read then it exists it it doesn't exist on its own it exists only after it's been read and responded to by somebody and the people responding to it with such warmth and goodwill and enthusiasm has just been the nicest part of it it's just been fabulous it's a little bit oppressive though, to be fair. I mean, <laughs> you can't stop, you mustn't stop. We can't live without you, you know, can't live without Richard. That's, it's, it's, it's a hard gig to but keep But you know going. what, Natalie and I were speaking before, and I think Natalie, you're, you can put this to Lee yourself, but you're skeptical that it will ever stop, aren't you? Well, like, yeah, reading, reading your book, it, you know, there's such a strong work ethic throughout there and, you know, achieving things through hard work and just needing to, I think, to, to do something and learn and you know as Phil was saying you're so analytical and into numbers and yes there's kind of reason and logic in there as well but have you really retired <laughs> maybe you retired Reacher but surely you're not gonna stop I mean again you know you created Lee Child a pseudonym you can do that again and nobody would yeah, know I right could, but, you know it's uh I started out doing it because I was fired from my old job and my ambition was to be able to pay the bills and you know, happily now I can pay the bills for the next thousand years. And so where is the motivation? You know, it's about the readers. And uh, the only motivation mm -hmm. is emotional contract with the reader. And I am worried about letting them down. And the example that Phil gave there, you know, meeting somebody that, that I know and respect um, and having them in the embarrassing situation of, of not wanting to talk about the book because the standard has gone down, that has got to be avoided. And I'm not saying that it would have, but if the fear gets in your mind, you have got to pick your spot and say, I'm really, really happy with the 24. They're solid. And ironically, my favorite of them all was in that extra three book contract after I thought I would, I would have quit. Uh, the Midnight Line, I think. Uh, yeah, ultimately, I'm happier with that book than any of the others, but I've got this solid body of work and I did not want to just sort of fritter it away at the end with substandard stuff. And I'm not saying that that would have happened, but if, uh, if that 
if that instinct enters your mind, it kind of it kind of stops you from doing it. So I don't think I am going talking to do about how else. busy you'll stay. How how involved are you with the Amazon Prime TV show for Reacher? And how's Tom Cruise mm. about that? By the way, are you still friends with Tom? Is he, are you still invited on Tom's chopper? Yeah, Tom. Tom, you know, again, Tom is a driven guy who likes to succeed, and so he he took it took him a little while to to get over the fact that. Those first two movies, while they were fine, you know, they were decent, good movies, no problem at all. They didn't conquer the world. And so Tom found that difficult to, to deal with for a little period of time. But he is basically very, we're still friends. He, he got over it quickly. And I wanted him involved on the new show because the thing about Tom is whatever you see about him in public or um, in the tabloids or whatever, or on screen, privately, he is an unbelievably good analyst of story he he understands story and it, mm -hmm. he is a huge superstar but surprisingly unegotistical about story he um for instance at the beginning of every scene you know you set up to shoot a scene he's talking about what is the message of this scene how do we get it across how do we say what we need to say in this scene and if it if it's that the co-star has most of the lines, he's really fine with that because if it, if that moves the story forward, he's happy with it. He's got no ego about it. So I wanted him involved as an executive producer, simply from the story point of view. So sure, we we still get along fine. He's very excited about it. The Amazon thing has been, um, in a way, the uh, the timing was good for us with the virus because it meant that the writers could just get on with it and write the, the entire first season, which they did. And um, and casting is difficult because how do you do casting over Zoom? You know, it's very hard to do. So casting is a little slower than I thought it would be. Georgia, the state of Georgia, that's where we're going to shoot the first one because it's killing floor. Uh, Georgia a month or so ago looked okay. Now it's a disaster from the point of view of infection. So the schedule is going to be a little bit disrupted, but Amazon is still really keen on doing it because, you know, a sort of insider perspective from them is that this is a show that can be made domestically. It, you know, we can go to Georgia, set up a kind of quarantine camp, do the show. There's no international travel involved. You know, we don't have pictures of Geneva banks or, we, you know, there's no, not going to Paris or anything like that. So actually it's quite simple. It's a show that can be made under these circumstances. So they, they're, they're really keen on it. Um, it's going slower than we thought it would simply because of the circumstances, but it is um, going pretty well so far. I've so Cruz is executing on it, but there's no actual actor for Jack yet. Is that right? Well, the, you know, I, that, that that is going to be that's going to be <laughs> that's going to be a huge reveal and uh, you know like i can't talk about the booker prize books i certainly mm. can't talk about that otherwise uh, i'll i'll be hollywood will kill me within about a minute but but i do love the uh the, i do love the notion though that so if tom cruise is exact producing then does he have a hand in casting as well so what you're saying about ego versus storytelling the ego has to go out the window if he's then also got a hand in the entire look of this thing that he used to be yeah, a part I mean, of in terms he of he doesn't have any kind of veto or any particular authority over it any more than i do for instance but because i'm also an executive producer but yeah. uh you know certainly we'll we'll talk about it but yeah he, he you know he's he's very self-deprecating about that in the first movie there's a scene where 
uh, reaches in a sports bar and and five guys kind of pick a fight with him so he takes he, he takes them outside and, and, right and so when we shot that scene um he did a sort of spontaneous alternative take where uh, you know the five guys are out there they're ringed around him in a semicircle and he goes one two what you expected somebody bigger so you know he oh, why didn't that stay in that's yeah, such yeah, a good line yeah so it is it is a shame but but it shows you that he knew you know he knew that physically he was wrong for it and so he's totally open to picking a big guy yeah i mean he, he's not going to be advocating for somebody five foot eight no well i guess probably he, uh, almost the opposite he would want someone radically different to him yeah yeah he would the, the logic the logic is clear isn't yeah it? the logic anyway is clear that i mean tom has decided not to act on television he never has and he says he never will he's a feature film guy uh, but the logic of it is that a thing like the reacher series now in 2020 is much better on long-form television uh, whereas the the original deal was 2011, you know, nine years ago. No, sorry, it was... 20, no, no 20, it was much earlier than 2011 that. 2011 was when mm. Cruz first got interested in it, but the deal dates from 2005, which is 15 years ago now. Wow. And 50, yeah. 15 years ago, obviously you would go to the feature films rather than yeah. streaming television because there was no streaming television but now i mean it took so long to do didn't it that's the thing it, yeah if, things change if you were going to do a deal now obviously your first thought is amazon or netflix or something um rather than features and so it's really just that we're moving it into a into a medium that suits it much better i mean can you imagine we've got like 10 12 hours to tell the story instead of two hours uh, and it's a long book yeah, I mean, it's uh, all books are long when it comes to to television. Um, I mean, my gold standard for that was when I was at Granada and we did Brideshead Revisited. Well, Brideshead, people remember that book as a big fat book, and it's absolutely not. It's actually you're right. It's a slim one. It's isn't quite it? a yeah. slim novel in a regular mm. in mm. a regular printing. It's about three hundred and some pages. It's really not that long. Mm. But to do that faithfully took us thirteen hours. So thirteen mm. hours to do a slim novel. Uh, just mm. and and for Amazon, we're going to be doing Killing Floor, which is a little longer than Brideshead Revisited, but but we'll have sort of ten to twelve hours. I just love that freedom. You know, we can do mm. the quiet bits because the quiet bits in the Reacher stories are just as important as the action bits. Uh, we can take our time. It it can be patient. Uh, we don't have to miss so much stuff out. So it's the obvious destination now, and I uh, I can't wait to get going on it. And I certainly can't wait to see it. Uh, I bet it's going to be really good looking. Yeah, I bet it is too. So how are you filling your days at the moment, aside from obviously still doing work on all of these things, but I know you're always reading voraciously. Is there like a huge well, there stack is of now, things to yeah, be read? Because, you know, I've been since January tied up with the Booker Prize, which was um, 150 books in seven months, which is basically uh, a book a day. And um, so I've loved mm. that, absolutely loved it. But I've got a huge, I'm looking at it now, literally three entire bookcases of uh, things to catch up on. And so, yeah, I'd love reading. That's what I'm going to be doing. Somebody said to me, what are you going to do in retirement? I said, I'm going to read and I'm going to smoke. And uh, I'm going to stick to those, absolutely. 
And Heather, what about I, you? I, Are you going to do another biography? Because this one is so yeah. good. I think you need to. Oh, thank you. <laughs> you can't, this can't be your foot one and out. It can't be. Oh, well, I was thinking of doing, you know, 21 <laughs> stories about a recurring character, you know. <laughs> I, I think, I think um, there's a lot still to tell. <laughs> but thanks. Um, I would like it to see. Uh, I'm really glad you enjoyed reading I would it. like to see it do other people. I mean, because uh, there's a lot. A lot of well, I think, speak to writers. I mean, there's a lot of fascinating writers, and uh, I agree. I think that I have got some ideas. Yeah, I love the, all the sort of behind the scenes stuff. I I'd love to know how people work. You know, what are what do they do? What are the tricks of the trade? What are mm. the secret fears? What are the satisfactions? I'd love to know that about anybody. It's been the biggest frustration for me as a writer. You know, you're constantly in contact with people and they want to talk about me. I don't want to talk about me. I want to hear from them. You know, you meet a journalist. What are actually the tricks of the trade? What, what are all those secret stories? Mm. Um, <laughs> that's what I... <laughs> Well, if it helps any, re reading the the biography, I really resonated with, and I'm sure Phil did too, because you talk so much about your schooling, if you like, in when you were at Granada, in terms of the amount of stories or subtitles or anything, you know, four-word stories you're having to write for a feature or short things. And similarly, Phil and I have worked in news for a long time as well. And it is, it's quite a skill, I think, and quite a, it takes quite a long time to learn how to sum up something it's really complex unbelievable in skill and i i admire it i mean you gotta know you gotta trust the reader a little bit because you you're using so few words you've got to trust that they're going to pick up on what you're saying uh but there's an elegance to it there's a delight in doing it so concise um i love that yeah and so whoever, whoever i'm talking to i want to know their secrets i want to know what's hard what's easy how do they cheat uh, you know, what corners can be cut? What can you get away with and what can't you get away with? That's the stuff I want to know. And you come to Manchester, Lee, we'll have lunch. I'll tell you all my filthy little secrets. <laughs> Take more than one lunch, Phil. Yeah, I was going to say, I've got a ton as well. <laughs> lunch and dinner for about 10 consecutive days to get through all that. <laughs> I had that, ex definitely had that experience writing this book. And I actually loved writing the, the stuff about Granada because that was all new to me. It was also one of the things that I thought people really hadn't got right about no one really asked no one ever seriously asked what he did at granada and uh, you know it was so interesting to hear about that seriously and also to hear about it particularly from rob rob reeves who we were talking about earlier who who remembered the routines and the sort of minutiae of the whole thing so so clearly and and i just found that you know a revelation really it was, uh, everybody's, the, I mean, other people are the same in some ways. I remember the first time I had dinner with Tom Cruise. Uh, you know, obviously in the back of his mind, he's thinking, I'm an actor, maybe one day I'll have to play a writer, so I want to find out all the writer's secrets. Mm -hmm. And I'm sitting there thinking, I'm a writer, maybe one day I'll want to write about an actor, so I need to know all his secrets. So mm -hmm. Well, you know, we, I, remember, I remember the first time I had dinner with Lee Child, and... Um... <laughs> and it was very difficult, because we kept on just asking each other questions, we weren't answering them, and so in the end we... we 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 fell into this rhythm where I would ask a question, he would answer, then he would ask a question and I would answer. It was the only way to get through dinner. Excellent. 
we should probably at this stage we should probably get some book recommendations from you heather do you want to go first oh yeah well i'll keep it quick i'm i've got two uh one that i'm i'm actually in the middle of reading so it's not really fair but i'm really enjoying uh the narrow land by christine dwyer hickey which is the kind of um fictionalized life of edward hopper and um, the artist and that that's you know i i really interesting to me and and all sorts of interesting sort of um echoes for me of, of, of you know the, the biography of having written about Lee and and the other one that I finished recently that I, I, I really enjoyed was um, a debut by Ronan Hessian called Leonard of Hungry Paul. Uh, I know it's it's been talked about a lot that book it's a, it's a very sort of simple story in a way about ordinary life and ordinary people. Um, I, I think I really enjoyed that because the voice again is so distinctive it has there are surprising turns of phrase, just as there are perhaps in Lee's writing, although it's very, very different. But I think what I most liked about it was it was a kind of very loving book, you know, the level of the detail of language, but also the detail of um, character and human beings and life as it's lived. And, and it's not a biography, it's a fiction, but for me it had a, the, the quality, you know, that attention to sort of biographical detail that I, I really enjoyed. So those are my two recommendations. I'm going to cop out a little bit because as I said before, I've been doing Booker Prize reading all year. I haven't really read anything else and I'm not allowed mm. to really say oh, read this one or read that one because it's like yeah, a yeah. clue as to <laughs> who might be the winner. So what I would, what I would say is, <laughs> is, uh, I think when this when this podcast becomes available, the shortlist will be uh, announced very shortly afterward. And so, what I would say to people is, uh, if if you read me, if you read the genre, uh, just for once, look at the shortlist of the Booker, and read a couple of them. And I, because I guarantee you, I have been on the panel, and I I have not let any bullshit get through these. You, that's a great recommendation you see that <laughs> the booker shortlist this year is not going to be like any other year because i've been policing it the, the, <laughs> these are literary novels absolutely but they are good ones um and my bullshit detector is so sensitive that all those <laughs> ones died a long time ago it, it's totally safe to read any of them and especially because a lot of them are our debuts and the energy the passion is fantastic so just for once in your life read a book a nominated book and see what you think and it's less of a risk like i said it's less of a risk this year than any other year because i you know me i'm not going to let any crap get through these are the lee child seal of approval yeah yeah these are solid these are solid <laughs> books and um some of them are new and uh, the writers themselves would be so grateful if you give a new writer a chance which is getting harder and harder now uh, and so that's my mission i'm going to recommend only new writers to people so look at the book of shortlist pick out the debuts read them all and then write to me and say either yeah thank you or fuck you child <laughs> <laughs> Well, I hope you enjoyed that as much as we did, uh, which is why we chose to split it up into two episodes for you. And um, I'll level with you, having interviewed Lee a couple of times. I've, he's never been as candid as that. Uh, and I think, and Heather agrees me, with right? me. 
<laughs> I think that he's got the thing for Natalie Jameson. No, <laughs> I, um, I, that's, that's a different person I know. I think that it's because it's not his book. Does that make sense? So although the yeah. book is about him, it's not something he's written. Heather's written it. It's about his life. So I think that made him more relaxed, possibly. So there's a little bit more distance between... Yeah. Yeah, what he what he feels he can say or how connected he is, which yeah. is kind of slightly strange given that the material is all about him and yeah. his life. But yeah, I think it's um he hasn't been the one that's physically been been tapping things down, even though his his words are used so much throughout the book. But do you know what? The one thing that's still I mean, we did that interview two months ago. Was it really? Yeah, Oof. yeah. And it still fascinates me what Heather said about which parts which parts of that book are jim grant which parts mm. are jack reacher which parts are lee child and i came away from that interview thinking i wonder do, do i really know lee after all i, mean, I thought i knew him a little bit and then some of the things i knew some of the stories when I, mean, I saw him at harrogate he told me he'd had that rook because he still had some of the bruising yeah but, um that story was remarkable by the way just because it it happened so recently. Yeah. Like that that strand to his personality has never, you know, dissipated at all, has it? No. No, and that's a real Jack Reacher thing, isn't it? It's mm. a real, you know, there's an injustice going on and I'm going to go and sort it. Yeah. Um, which I thought was was really, really fascinating. But then the the story about Granada that, um, that, that the mate says is bollocks, so that, that really made me laugh because... You know, kind of Lee's adamant that it isn't. That's the thing I find as well. Don't you about just getting older? Like, I mean, if I'm, we probably shouldn't, but if we were to tell a story about you and I working together twenty years ago at Radio One, for example, my <laughs> my memory of whatever the story would, be, would probably be slightly different to yours, wouldn't it? I think it'd be very different. <laughs> um, yes, I think it would be different, young Sir Phil. <laughs> but I think you know, I think it's um. Yeah, I think obviously a degree of openness comes as you get a bit older. Uh, and it's funny, like when you were just saying things there about Lee Child, I so enjoyed spending time in his company and I absolutely trusted everything that he said. Yeah, I was still questioning some of the some of his storytelling, but just because he's such a he has so much skill at doing it mm, so you mm. sort of know that he could spin you along if he wanted to and I don't think he was necessarily to us at all um but I sort of really admire that quality and in, in him too yeah I agree so there we go it's called the reacher guy Lee Child and Heather Martin and uh, is there anything else to add at this point or after an exhausting 90 minutes should we leave them alone <laughs> <laughs> probably uh, otherwise i am just likely to reveal something more about my deepest darkest secrets that i should never say out loud <laughs> tell me something about your life <laughs> more next time <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>